In other words. 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 Welcome to In Other Words, the podcast from Revolving Doors Agency, made possible by the generous support of Lankelly Chase. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. The mission at Revolving Doors is to research and share evidence of effective ways to improve services for people stuck in the revolving door of crisis and crime. How? By working with national and local government, policymakers, commissioners, academic researchers, and people with lived experience. It's work that helps other organizations make life-changing differences. 2018 is Revolving Doors' 25th anniversary, so we're reinvigorating the conversation. We're gathering voices from across the sector to really get to the heart of the issues and questions we should all be asking. Revolving Doors may not agree with all the opinions that follow, but they're valuable contributions to the debate. We'd love to hear what you think, so join the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag InOtherWords and our handle at RevDoors. In this episode, what are the implications for the future? What work needs to be done and by whom? What changes do we need to make if we really want to see better outcomes for some of the most vulnerable people in our society? James is a member of the Revolving Doors lived experience team. He started using heroin at the age of 12 and was first remanded as a young offender at the age of 17. He served multiple custodial and community sentences. Couldn't even tell you how many times um, I've been in and out of that prison and other prisons around the country. Short sentences, yeah, mostly short sentences. They were, I was a pickpocket from a young age and then it was like uh, shoplifting as well. Um, burglary. Um, not violent or you know what I mean? Uh, 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 aggravated sentences, uh, crimes, I mean, just all like petty, you know what I mean? James started to get into trouble from the age of nine, smoking cannabis, misbehaving at school and eventually being expelled. He got the nickname Rocky because he was a fighter and says that as a child, he was disappointed he hadn't grown up in care because it would have made him harder. In 20 years, the longest time he stayed out of prison was 18 months. It's nuts when I look back at how crazy my thinking was, which progressed over years, you know what I mean? Um, and so, so when I say the revolving door, that's, that's where it got me. That, that, you know what I mean? Like I was like, a, like in my mind, which wasn't true, by the way, but in my mind... I was a, uh, I had a name, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, 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 I like I had, I had a badge of honour, you know, walking around them landings like an idiot, thinking that I was something. People that loved me, who, who cared about me, and I loved and cared about them, but there was a part of me that being in prison, I, I liked, like this sounds sad, but I, I looked forward to getting out to be with them. I had all these uh, dreams and expectations on myself of when I got out. 
and I look forward to getting out. But when once I got out and I'd be out for a few weeks, I wanted to be back in there. There was a part of me that missed being in there, and that's sad. When I think back, like there was a yearning to be in there and the camaraderie of you know, all, all these different characters and shouting out the window and talking through the pipe and you know and and, and getting the drugs in the prison and you know just rebelling against the the, the system. Everything I missed that. That was that was the the sad thing that I look back and see, and that's. That's the revolving door for me. I, 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 you know, like I was, I was in a dilemma. I, I was, it was um, wanting to be out, getting out, and then wanting to be in. <clears throat> but I related all to addiction, and then when I got out, my partner said I can't do this no more. She asked me to leave. I ended up, you know, I ended up alone with no one, and. Um, I ended up in the hostel, homeless. Never been homeless in my life. But what happened was, was what was inside. What, what something? It was, it was such a pain inside me, like unbearable, like uh, that I've never felt before. I couldn't even find my mum's grave when, 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 when uh, I was looking for her in the cemetery. And I screamed from the pit of my stomach. I don't know whether it come out my mouth, but I felt it in my stomach. It was a, a cry for help. No one was there. And then uh, I ended up um, going to the services. They got me into detox, come out of detox, um, moved in with my brother, and, you know, and, and got stayed clean and just, you know, um, started to... To become the person I always was before the nickname of Rocky. <laughs> James has now been clean for eight and a half years, and he now mentors other men in custody. The only time I ever admitted to a, an officer anything was on that last sentence when I'd lost all them days. And he asked me, he said to me, "If you, I can see in you a good person." He said, "Have you got family that care about you out there?" And I said, "Yeah." He said. And you've got all these days to do, and you've got frequent urine testing. You, have you used? And I and I just took a chance. I, I knew, I felt it that he, he was something. He, he actually cared. You know what I mean? And I said, yeah, I have. And he said, well, and he gave me a chance. He said, well, I'm not going to take you for a urine test. He said, you get these days done. He said, and get out to them people that care about you. And, and and I did, and then I seen him in in the town centre with his wife, and he said to me he couldn't do that job anymore because he seen there was people like me. He said, and his wife said, "Who's this, darling?" And he said, he looked at me, right? He looked at his wife, and he said, "This is an old friend." Then I shook his hand and I thanked him. And he, he said, what for? And I said, you know what? Nearly everybody we speak to um, who has turned their lives around, who is in recovery, who has desisted from crime, who is helping us, nearly every person we speak to can talk about 
an inspirational person or a moment in their life where they took agency. So very often it's a peer. They've spoken to somebody who's a peer supporter in a substance misuse service or they found somebody in prison who they thought was an inspiration. More rarely, it's a paid member of staff. So sometimes it's a prison officer or a probation officer or a police officer or a mental health uh, worker or substance misuse worker or, or somebody working in domestic violence. But nearly always somebody can point at somebody who gave them some hope for a future life that wasn't the one they were living. The other thing people talk about is it is their responsibility to family. So people will say, I didn't want to carry on being this person because I looked at my child. I realised what I was doing to my child or my mother or my partner. And that gave them the inspiration to get the agency in their lives. The inspirational individual, the right intervention at the right time, a sense of agency. It can change lives. But how do we build those transformations into services and policy? Professor Tony Ward is a clinical psychologist based at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand. He's developed a model specifically designed for working with people who've committed crimes. It's known as the Good Lives Model. First of all, it tries to um, reduce an individual's chances of reoffending, so it has a risk uh, focus. But primarily it does that through, secondly, trying to help people live better kind of lives. And by good life, I mean a life that's likely to give them a better shot at well-being, happiness, really achieving the, th- the kind of things that we all want, relationship, jobs, rather than simply being concentrating on um, reducing their chances of hurting someone. The problem with the current correctional programs, they're very risk-orientated. It's all about, essentially, how can we stop people from hurting other people? which of course is a lot of blame, but you really need to try and understand what's going on for the person, why they did what they did. And, and if you're looking at the future, what might help them turn their life around? So to someone who's never heard of it, kind of, how does it work? The way it works is that you look at someone, when someone comes through the door, you ask them questions like, what have you always wanted to do? What's important to you? And for most men and women who have committed offences, this is quite a shock because what they're used to hearing is, um, what are your problems, if they're lucky, or typically what people say to them, we're going to put you on this programme so you, we lower your risk of reoffending. So it's quite, a, it's quite a change. And what you try to do is tap into their personal priorities, the thing that matters most to them. It could be their work, it could be an aspiration, they might want to go to university or they might want to be a gardener, it could be to do with their family. And you make that the focus of your plan and all the other, um, I guess, skills and competencies that you would normally do uh, in, a, in a correctional program would all be oriented around this major goal. It may sound fluffy, but it's fundamentally underpinned by evidence showing what stops people from committing crime. Well, when you look at the literature and the research on desistance, and that is, you know, why do people give up offending lifestyles? And they'll pretty much tell you the same kinds of things. It's because they've found a way to live, they've managed to find a, um, a job, someone who believed in them. In other words, there's a way of um, making their way in the world that's, um, um, that's rewarding and fulfilling and is also pro-social. The trouble is uh, psychologists, forensic psychologists, criminal justice workers have completely lost sight of that fact and they're just seeing it through their own lens. They're just seeing 
um, they're just thinking about it in terms of well, what don't we want this person to do. They're really not thinking about it from the other person's point of view. How can I do things differently? Because if you look very carefully at the men and women who commit offences and try and understand what's going on, one thing you notice is that they look remarkably like us. They're people like us. They're not really very different. The problem is the way they've gone about trying to achieve what I call primary human goods, which are things like relationships, work, sense of purpose, uh, play even, uh, have been problematic. And partly that's because they don't have the skills or the opportunities to do things differently. And sometimes in their environments, there aren't really many other options. Uh, the problem is we, we're just so used to seeing people through that risk lens and through the lens of punishment, we forget that they're actually human beings as well. Strengths-based approaches like this are gaining popularity internationally. They did a big survey in North America a few years ago and they asked programs what, what were their kind of core models. And looking at Canada and the US, about 50% of the programs were using the Good Lives model to inform their treatment. It's pretty well established in England. Um, I'm going to Belgium, in Belgium, Germany, throughout Europe, uh, Australia. As a, as a way of thinking about what we're doing. So it's a good example of a strength-based approach that isn't just singing kumbaya and you know, saying we should love each other because it's very, clear, <laughs> it's very clear that we also have to reduce risk, but there's a way of doing it that can engage men and women in that process of change. Like all of us, they want a chance at a meaningful life and a fulfilling one, not simply the promise that they're going to be less harmful to others. That's not going to motivate them. It's not going to get them up in the morning. It's not going to do the job. The research that we have suggests that it works as well as the traditional risk-oriented approaches. But more importantly, people, therapists find it much more enjoyable to deliver. Individuals seem to respond to it. And I think from a simple learning point of view, it makes much more sense to ask the question, if someone is, what can we give someone um, to make up for the goods they're getting from crime. So for some people it's excitement, for some it's status, for some it's money. How can we find a way for them to achieve those things without hurting other people? So it's looking at the function of behaviour and that makes perfect sense to me. But why should people who've harmed others have the luxury of these opportunities and support when someone who's struggled to do the right thing might not get those opportunities? One of the problems we have in the criminal justice system is that it's a punishment system. And it's very easy to export that concern with punishment and moral balance into everything to do with the criminal justice system. So people want to see individuals punished forever. They want to see them excluded. They, 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 in a way, they kind of see them like some sort of virus or disease that needs to be quarantined. They find it very difficult to let go of their anger and their grievances. And that's one of the problems I think we have because it's a morally charged arena. And I can understand that. But the cold facts are people are going to get out. And really, if we want to engage them in a constructive way, we have to offer them something. And I can't see that there's a problem as long as we're reducing their risks. So part of it, I think, is um, that we are grievance-ridden, we're angry, and we just want to keep on punishing, and it's just not going to work. And what about the person with a long history of convictions and a dubious educational background who has unrealistic expectations of what a good life on the outside might look like? What we often find is that people aren't clear about what it is they really want. They're very clear about what we call the means or um, secondary goods, ways of achieving things. So they'll talk about wanting to be a rock star or make a lot of money or be a millionaire. But when you start to question them carefully, 
and you ask them, well, what is it about having all that money? What is it about being a rock star that's so alluring to you, so important? And you find some very interesting things. What they'll often say is, well, if I achieve that, then I have a certain amount of independence or people will take me seriously, I'll have respect, or I can buy a house I've always wanted to, I can do the things, I can have a garden. So things become much more prosaic if you keep asking questions, because often people simply don't know. All they know is, oh yeah, that looks good, I'd love that, but they haven't really thought about the values that underlie it, and that's one of the jobs of of therapists to do that. Do you think we criminalise vulnerable people? One thing I've noticed about pretty much All the men and women that I've worked with, they have lives of um, deprivation, neglect and abuse. These are the people who end up in prison. And so in many respects, they are victims as well as people who commit offences. So they have this kind of dual status. And of course, punishments, I believe, is appropriate when people do very harmful things. But as victims uh, of abuse and neglect, then they they have entitlements as well. One of the nice things about approaches like the Good Lives model, because they're so focused on strengths, you actually address both problems at the same time. So on the one hand, of course, they're in prison, and so that's part of the picture. On the other, you're giving them, uh, helping them acquire resources and knowledge and skills for achieving things for themselves. So in a way, you're acknowledging their their dual status as vulnerable people uh, and as people who've committed offences, which is what most of them are, in my experience. Another member of the Revolving Doors lived experience team agrees. If you get that encouragement and, you know, someone's kind of like, you know, your cheerleader and egging you on, then you're going to feel better about yourself. Then you're going to behave better, you know, you're going to feel more confident, you know, and and you're going to get setbacks in life. I mean, that, that is part of life, but it depends on what you do with it. Criminologist Professor David Wilson served as a prison governor for 14 years. For him, debate always circles back to the role of prison in society. One of the strangest uh, experiences as a prison governor that I had would be prisoners pleading with me not to be released. And you're like, what on earth are you talking about? And they would say, well, what am I going out to? I'm going out to nothing. I don't have a home. You're giving me a discharge allowance of about 40 quid. Um, that's going to be spent within two days. I haven't got a job. I've got nowhere to go to uh, in here. I'm given meals. I'm warm. Uh, I have some status, especially if they've been employed in the prison. So there, there is this strange phenomenon whereby I did realise it was often unkind to release some prisoners at particular periods in the calendar. You know, I had a prisoner in particular, a number of prisoners in particular would not like to be released just before Christmas because they'd be spending Christmas alone. And you did think, gosh, this is, this is absolutely a condemnation of society that they would be going out to nothing and it was better off they were better off being in a jail for me prison works best when it is simply locking up very dangerous men it works least well when it's locking up the numbers it's currently locking up because it doesn't cope well with those uh, people it does nothing to educate prisoners it does nothing to give them work skills it does nothing no matter you know we can collude with the fantasy that it does but the simple reality 
is that it does not, and therefore use prison for what it does best, which is keep violent men away from harming people in the community. Is it a question of, of money? Would more money make a difference? Well, actually, it, it, would be, it would be less money. You know, if you reserved prison just for very violent men, you would not be, it would not be costing as much money as it currently does cost a taxpayer to lock 80-odd thousand people up. So actually, you would save money. Um, but what you've got to balance there is it is often not the money that drives um, these decisions. What drives these decisions is electoral advantage. There are no votes in reducing the prison population. Um, and until we can educate the public to believe our prison numbers are too high, until we can get to that stage, um, then whether we're talking about politicians who are blue or politicians who are red or politicians who are yellow, there will be very few politicians who will be prepared to say we should have fewer people banged up rather than more people banged up. How do you then change public attitudes to these people who are locked in this revolving door of crime, crisis, prison, homelessness, offending? Well, I think you change people's attitudes by giving them information instead of the black and white picture that is so often presented, especially in our tabloid press, that the issues that surround crime and punishment are neither black nor white, but they're usually grey. And so I want to engage in that debate and try and give the public genuine information about crime and punishment. Because at the end of the day, I'm an old-fashioned Democrat. I really do genuinely believe that if you give people the right information, they will by and large make the right decisions. Suzanne Fitzpatrick, Professor of Social Policy at Harriet Watt University. In terms of changing public attitudes, I think I've been a bit of a sceptic on this. I mean, we've done a lot of, of, of really quite progressive stuff in Scotland to be honest, without really consulting the public on it at all. So we we published, uh, we, 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 we legislated for very progressive homelessness legislation, um, which, you know, was really an outcome of um, progressive elites deciding what the homelessness legislation ought to look like. So we managed to get quite far down the road without changing public attitudes. There has been a lot of work done by Crisis, Joseph Rountree Foundation and others about how do you tell a narrative around these issues that actually resonates with the public. It's always been the case. Complicated people with complex problems have always slipped through the cracks because our services are very bad at understanding people as people and very good at seeing them as specific needs and treating their specific needs only. I think there are some specific challenges at the moment. So what we see is people are very often what's known as sub-threshold. They don't reach the threshold for treatment. Um, particularly again in mental ill health or they're taking the wrong drugs to get substance misuse treatment. Um, we have concerns that a number of the thresholds are rising at the moment um, and if you're in a number of systems where the thresholds are rising 
then it's very likely you're going to fall through more cracks. So link workers and key workers do a great job. They, they navigate, and, and one of the other names for them is system navigators. They navigate incredibly complex systems of services and try and help people into those services um, and advocate for them and work out the services that are right for them and help them through it and support them. Um, they are essential and they do brilliant work. My more fundamental question would be, why are our services so difficult that we need to have system navigators or link workers to get people in them? We should maybe be thinking more fundamentally about what the services look like so that we don't have to have people who link people back into the services. That's a really fundamental challenge to the services, though, to become accessible um, to everybody. What role should people with lived experience have in shaping policy and services? Mental health writer Mark Brown. One of the first things about design thinking is you can't really do design without your user. Um, so people who experience mental health difficulties may or may not have great ideas about solutions for solving problems in mental health, but what they have got is great statements of problems. And what we, we tend to do, what research tends to do, is tend to remove, tends to remove good statements of problems by trying to prove hypotheses. Um, or trying to remove the granularity. So what happens is, is people look for what is universal around an issue, and that's terrible for design. You can't design from statistics, you can't design from abstracts, you can only design from um, granular experience. How do you go from those individual unique experiences and stories and then create something that potentially can command government funding, can be some kind of national rollout, can be part of big picture strategy and thinking? I think you have to start small. I, th I think you need to try something and see whether it works with some people and see whether they like it. So, so I'm kind of quite a fan of, of giving people as many bites of the pie as possible. So kind of, you know, in design terms, it's what you call sense checking. Go back to the people from whom you drew your insights and ask them, have I got the wrong end of the stick? Does this thing, this idea, look anything like the thing you were trying to tell me about? And we don't do that. We literally don't do that endemically in the third sector and the public sector. We never do that going back to people. And as a substitute for that, we have this idea of what we need to do is build community. And then all we do there is we transfer the responsibility for solving the problems to the people who have them. Where is the balance between empowering and facilitating an individual, community or society at large and simply handing over the blame for failure? Basically, if you've got enough money, um, if your problem is your house is messy, you get a cleaner. If you are currently on disability benefits, you'll get sent to a course telling you about why it's important to have a clean house. Um, there's this weird sort of moral judgment that goes along that if we could just teach people who are disadvantaged to not be disadvantaged, then they'd stop being disadvantaged. So we kind of like, if you've got a group of working class people who are having difficulties with their mental health, what we need to do is train them to think like middle class people, then they won't be either working class or have mental health difficulties. So we kind of do this weird thing. And, and I think often for very good reasons, um, People who have knowledge and experience and influence become very uncomfortable with the power that gives them over people. Um, they're like aware of their privilege 
And that becomes increasingly uncomfortable the more they realise the reality of the problems that people deal with. But people have this weird reflex of trying to give their privilege away. So if you are a really good service designer, why are you asking a group of people who, to be honest, are like, it was like crawling over broken glass to get to your meeting. Why are you asking them how to solve the service design problem that your organisation can't solve? We did a consultation. People gave us their ideas. We're not going to implement any of them because they're bloody awful. We know that because we design services. None of them are doable. So we kind of do this weird thing of transferring the responsibility for solving wicked social problems to the people who have them, as if that's the same as listening to them. So can service design and delivery be nudged in the right direction, or is it time to tear at the books and start again? Christina Marriott, CEO at Revolving Doors Agency. I think it's both, and, and I think our idea of what a service might look like might also need to change. So I think there's some really interesting work in thinking about, for example, what community looks like in services. So we very often think of services as paid members of staff who are paid to do things with people. Um, the first problem of that is that the people that things are being done to are having things done to them, not with them. And the second problem is they know the person's being paid to do it. And none of us feel valued if we know that the other person's only helping us because they're being paid to do so. So there are different models where we can think about different ways of people coming together to help each other. Um, so peer mentoring and peer support, we know, has great outcomes and things like substance misuse. There's some really interesting work about how we break social isolation in some communities that are suffering from social isolation. Um, there are different forms of, of services that may not look like our traditional statutory service, but might actually be able to respond to the human beings with multiple problems better than individual services can. Math Potts is the founder of the Association of Camarados, which he describes as a social movement rather than a service. Well, it was kind of 22 years in the making, if I'm to be honest. I've, I've been part of the problem, part of the system for many years. So I've, I've run charities, I've advised the government, I've done almost every form of kind of provision you can name from homeless shelter to rehab to domestic violence refuge, and I've, I've run most of them. And... Um, I just was always, always frustrated that we were never focusing on what the solution was. We were looking at ephemera. Well, no, important stuff like housing and money, but not the central stuff. And time and time and time again, it became really clear that the people who moved on with their life and transformed their life had two things. But we never focused on those two things. And those two things are friends and purpose. And so I thought, why? Well, actually, I didn't. I was harangued by various people who've watched me over the years fail spectacularly within the system to try and change it and move the super tank around and get lots of scars on my back and have a horrible time. And they said, for goodness sake, Matt, why don't you start your own thing? And I railed against that for a long time because there were 180,000 charities in the UK. We don't need another one. But uh, in the end, I realised that um, it was better to go where the good energy is and, and try and change it. The organisation helps communities create public living rooms, spaces that are open and welcome to all. Everybody who walks in is a camarado, described as halfway between a stranger and a friend. So we try and create spaces and places where people can connect with other people. Um, there needs to be something as well as the system, a place where you're not, no one's trying to fix you, there's no intervention. Um, 
You know, there's, you're not limited to a 10-minute consult like at the doctors. You can come and be and connect. Not every problem needs the system to solve. Not every problem needs a medical intervention. Not every problem needs the council to get involved. Most of the time, we just need somebody to acknowledge you're having a rubbish time and sit alongside you. So imagine um, at the sharp end, someone who is really in acute need, right? But has given up on the system because uh, it has... Uh, treated them as a, a, a data statistic. It hasn't really met their needs. It's their scary. It's a scary place. Um, so they need somewhere to come. Imagine uh, someone else who is at the uh, other end of the spectrum, who their life's just starting to fall apart. Well, where do they go as well? Um, what they tend to do is stay at home, row with their partner, fall out with their partner, get a drink problem, develop a mental health problem, lose their job subsequently lose their house oh and then we meet them in the hostels and the so there's kind of two ends none of them really have any a third place which is neither a service nor a pub where they can just go and and be and so we see all of those people um you know it 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 feels so binary it's kind of like no help or the system and think about the system and i'm sorry i'm being very critical but just have a think when you're having a really tough time what are the places on offer for you they're wipe clean strip lighting, plastic chairs, shutters, risk assessment form places. Not the first place you proactively want to go to when you're having a rough time and your head's exploding. And yet, you know, God love them, you know, police stations, hospitals, council offices, CABs, mental health drop-ins, addiction drop-ins. That is that's what they all look like. So it's a fairly simple thing. We have a piano and some fairy lights and a sofa and an armchair and nobody harassing you. And guess what? We're quite popular. So you're not a service provider? No way. No, no, no. We're not a service. We're not a service provider. We're trying to ignite a movement of people around the world to um, do something in the cracks that is seriously missing from the system. And I'm kind of, I've kind of given up trying to get the system to change to that. So we're just going to take the power and do it ourselves. The Camarados have set up living rooms in prisons, libraries, parks, hospitals and a football stadium. But what makes this different to a drop-in centre run by volunteers? So the five things that kind of help an environment be a Camarado environment. Um, number one is the most important. It's kind of what we're all about. It's, we call it our secret source. And that is, um, if someone's having a tough time, uh, don't help them. Ask them to help you. Transformative. As soon as you say to someone, could you do me a favor? Changes the dynamic. They, they feel valued. Um, they feel good about themselves. They want to help you. They're not thinking about how awful their life is anymore. And I've seen it time and time again. So that's number one. So make them places where everyone gets involved, you know, which instantly makes you not a soup kitchen, not a handout place. Because I need your hand, I need a hand here. Second thing is, is, is failure. Make them places where we laugh about failure and we put the kettle on. Um, for 20 years in the system, I've, I've penalised people for failure, made individual care plans that if they, if they deviate from, I evict them. You know, in a public living room, we just laugh and sit the kettle on. So wear your weaknesses on your... Um, oh, what's the... Sleeve, sleeve thank you. Um, and, and people, you can connect with people. The third thing is, is about not fixing. Massive thing. We stole that from the Samaritans. Um, don't, don't fix people. It's amazing what can happen when the dynamic is not, I'm here to sort your life out. You, you, you can really connect with people. Uh, the fourth one is, is mix, diversity. So we resolutely will not be a one client group organization. 
we want grannies and street drinkers to talk. So it, and it's there is nowhere else like it. We self-select. You know, there are some people who are all bar one people, and there are some people who are chicken cottage. You know, they don't share the same space, right? So the mix is everything. And then the fifth one is fun. And actually, you know, that's the one people dismiss. But in all my years working with people with very tough lives, the single biggest thing is fun. Because guess what? Being unhappy and in poverty, uh, and uh, poverty of opportunity or crisis or anything, um, isn't much fun. So why is it rocket science that you want to stick the music on, order pizza and have a laugh? So that's really, really important. And it's completely expunged from all services. No fun in a hospital, no fun in a police station, no fun in a council office. Why is that? Because, you know, the people there are not having a nice time. So that's a big one for us. Those five, really. Is it, is it realistic to sort of say this could exist instead of the system or is it as well as? It's as well as. We're, you know, we can't do what the NHS does, nor should we. And the NHS is amazing. Um, uh, and there are wonderful people in the system. I think my sadness is that it became a normal thing to if I talked about a fantastic key worker or social worker or you know anyone within any side of the profession I was always talking about them going beyond what they were expected to do they were always doing something exceptional or in spite of you never said wow they're a great key worker they do exactly what their job description says that never happened so um there are wonderful people in the system, but I'm, I haven't a huge amount of faith in, in the system anymore because it tends to dehumanize people. Um, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't look at friends and purpose. I, listen, I, I say this as someone who did it for 20 years. I never asked anyone who left the homeless hostels I was running whether they had any friends or whether they'd really connected with their purpose in life. I just got them a flat and a shelf stacking job. You know, guess what? They were back in three months. Is there a risk that we're asking people with the fewest resources, the least social capital, to fix their own problems? Ha <laughs> I love this question. Because I've been slated and laughed at and criticised and vilified for 20 years for suggesting that you ask someone in total and utter crisis to help you. Um, honestly, I've lost count of the meetings in Whitehall where I'm you know, dismissed for this. Um, I have sat opposite people who say the next thing they're going to do is kill themselves. You never know what to say. The only thing that has ever worked for me is I get them a cup of tea, I say, I'm sorry you're having a rubbish day, but could you do me a favour? And I asked them to give me a hand with something. There was a woman called Susan. She came in the Blackpool living room. She had mascara coming down her face. She'd been beaten up by a partner and she was heading for North Pier to jump off it. She came into the living room instead. I knew about her because the ambulance service had been in touch with us, actually. Uh, now, for 20 years, what I would have done is I would have put a needs and risk assessment in front of her, put my head on one side and talked all about her problems for an hour in a windowless room with a form. What we did was I gave her a cup of tea. I said, hey, Susan, I'm sorry you have a rough day, but listen, so is Colin. He's the lad over there in the mobility scooter. Could you sit down and have a cup of tea with him and cheer him up? She did. Within half an hour, they were laughing. By the end of the day, she had the apron on and she was serving everybody in the living room cups of tea. So you bloody can ask people in total crisis to help you. It will change the life of, you know, well, change their life and yours too. Christina Marriott. I don't disagree. I think there are real problems around it being a cheeky backdoor to not having any paid statutory services. I think it has to be done with a whole degree of care and thinking through and challenging but I also think we need to challenge the current models of care, where, for example, um, 
within mental health care, we have really strict boundaries about what people can and can't do because they work in professional colleges that tell them that this is their professional role and no further. And actually, if you talk to people who identify as survivors of mental health services, and I think that's a really interesting um, phrase, that they actually think they survived the service. If you talk to people about what they felt in those services, they very often talk about how they feel dehumanised by the workers in those services, by how mental health care felt dehumanising and distancing and how they didn't feel they could have human relationships with the nurses and the care workers and the psychiatrists. So I think there's a real challenge back to statutory services about how we bring back the care into our care services. And I think there are some interesting models around it. Um, and I think we need to find the balance between the two. So I've seen some community-based services that make me horrified in terms of their safeguarding, which make me really, really concerned for it. But what's undeniable is the care and love that's there that isn't there in the statutory service. And there is something really powerful about people feeling they can contribute as well as take and people feeling like they are seen as human beings and not as a need and people seeing some agency and hope for their way forward. We see it with the people who come into our forums to, to change the world, and on the whole they are there to speak truth to power, and they do it because they know they can change the world. Funding and commissioning models for services have undergone significant shifts in recent years. Payment by results schemes aim to bring in greater innovation, greater efficiency and private sector investment into public services. Independent providers are paid for achieving positive outcomes rather than for simply providing services. So far in the UK, schemes with a payment by results component are worth at least £15 billion worth of public money. Is PBR a way to kickstart diversity and innovation, or is it introducing market logic to complicated social challenges and complicated service users that don't easily fit the model? A review by the Academy for Social Justice Commissioning earlier this year concluded that the least attractive areas for the PBR model were where client groups were fragmented, service provision wasn't well integrated and a measurement of outcomes was not straightforward. Overall, it was too soon to tell if payment by results was an efficient way to unlock new investment and advance social good. Although the 2010 coalition government promised a rehabilitation revolution that would drive down reoffending using PBR incentives, eight years later, the positive results have yet to be seen. John McTernan is a political commentator and served as political secretary to Prime Minister Tony Blair until 2007. All the attempts uh, to pay our results, social investment bonds, whatever, they are essentially claims uh, on the public purse claims for a larger proportion of the public purse to be spent in a certain area. Um, and from the, from the perspective of people delivering service in that area or people receiving service in that area, there's always more money that can be spent. I think there's no shortcut to arguing the case for higher taxes and more spending in the public sphere because that's essentially what's being argued for. But that has to be a social settlement and a political settlement I'm not a sceptic about um, the, the need for uh, more resource to be spent in particular areas and, and more broadly. I'm a sceptic about 
the kind of special pleading that says if we can do it in this innovative value for money way and we can save money in the long run it's like no we're spending more now to spend more in the future we may be spending more now to spend it better in the future but there's no saving coming there's an increase in well-being there's an increase in uh, community strength and there's an increase uh, increase in consumption I mean let's I mean let's, let's say it clearly uh, Oh, listen, it's what rich countries should do. This country gets richer every year. Um, and what should rich countries do? They should spend more money on themselves. So what kinds of things would you want to consume more of? I think you should want to consume more education and consume more health. Um, and consume more health as a, as a means to a healthier, longer living. Adam Tinson from the New Policy Institute Think Tank. I mean, there's always going to be some mixture of public and private, uh, public and sort of voluntary services to help people. Um, lives can be pretty complicated. The situations people can find themselves in can be pretty complicated. The downside to, you know, having a, a generous social security system might be that there's you know, a lot of complexity, which requires people might need help navigating that as well. If the public starts expecting more from central government in terms of delivering this sort of thing, I think that that will help. Um, there's not really a much of a political constituency for this kind of thing. It, it, you know, uh, and it's often people who are quite disenfranchised from the political system um, for various reasons. Um, I think it's also the case that you know, there's probably quite a lot that employers can do to alleviate these problems. Um, that's not just limited to paying more. It's also about flexibility and um, trying to make efforts to get people from more disadvantaged backgrounds into employment as well. Um, so I think there's you know, definitely stuff that can be done by public engagement. The number of people who the system fails is smaller today um, in broad terms than it has been in our history. The sophistication of the approaches to help people is far greater. What we know about what works, what we know about what helps... And, and yes, um, the, the driving down of public spending has had an impact uh, in terms of service provision. But we have resilient individuals and deny, denying people the capacity and capability uh, to look after themselves and their families and their communities because of external forces is one of the ways that we frame uh, up social policy to do two things. One is to make people uh, dependent on our services. Um, another one to make us special by giving them the services. We didn't say that I'm not in favour of, of far higher level of public spending uh, than we have at the moment and I'm a huge critic of, what, of the, uh, the spending approach of... The, of uh, Karen Osborne followed on by Theresa May uh, and her government. Um, but looking to the future, if you, you, if you, if you take any span uh, of, of look, what, what will the next 25 years do, they'll be definitely better for people. Because the last 25 years have been in, uh, over, the, over the scale of things, as were the 25 before. There can be packages of measures designed that help solve these problems. Uh, but the funding and really the uh, intent or effort hasn't been there. Theresa May, almost exactly two years ago, had a speech 
talking about uh, on the on the front steps of Downing Street, just talking about her desire to deal with the burning injustices in British society. We haven't really heard much about that since um, the burning injustices are still there, but uh, whatever plans she had to tackle them don't really seem to have materialised much. What what would you say are the burning injustices? Um, I mean, we still have a very high poverty rate. Um, so about a fifth of people are on a low income. Um, we have a lot of people falling through gaps in the safety net. There is no, no shortage of injustices uh, out there. Um, but, you know, there's uh, more positive stuff as well. So the employment rate has risen quite a bit. Um, there's a lot more people in work, um, which can be good. Uh, not always good, but can be good. Um, you know, pe- old age isn't the same uh, curse of low income that it used to be. The, the connection, historical connection, has been reduced quite a bit. So um, there's good news out there as well. It's all the misery. Edward Davis from the Centre for Social Justice. I think the current government are in a bit of a bind at the moment by both electoral mathematics and by the need for legislation on Brexit. It it is restricting and tying their hands as to what they can do. That said, there are gaps where things can be done. Um, And there are individual people within government who are realising this and doing things to, to tweak the system a bit. Professor Suzanne Fitzpatrick, Professor of Social Policy at Heriot Watt University. Actually, um, among the public, there is um, a lot of this sort of deep wisdom and deep sympathy there that we can that we can harness. I don't think we necessarily ought to wait on it, um, but I think we can harness it. I think the key changes are at policy level. Yes, we can change local systems, and that is very important to do. Of course, when people are at crisis situation, emergency situation, but if we want to actually turn off the taps and get, um, you know be more effective at upstream prevention then actually it's the bigger picture it's the more structural policy drivers we have to change particularly uh, around poverty. John McTernan again. Change is not inevitable. Successful struggle is not inevitable but without struggle you don't get successful struggle and without successful struggle you don't get change. Do I think things will inevitably get better? No because choices have to be made socially, economically, politically Do I think that we're in a better situation to see progress happening? Yes, because more people are better educated, more enabled, well-connected, more self-confident, have more time, uh, have more resource uh, from social media through to other forms of access to campaigning tools, which are just incredibly cheap nowadays compared to old-fashioned campaigning. So do I think that people have the capacity, the capability... Uh, to press for the changes we need? Yes, I do. So, And do I trust in people to, to do that? Yes, I do. Do I trust in our country to get better? Yes, I do. The Revolving Doors Agency has been fighting to improve the system for people facing multiple challenges for 25 years. Everything they do is rooted in the belief that hope is born when providers see not the bundle of problems, but the person behind them. And they see the potential for change in the person and the system. As Christina Marriott describes, it's about speaking truth to power and trying to change the world. You've been listening to In Other Words, the podcast from Revolving Doors Agency. Check out the website for the other episodes in this series and join the discussion online, on Twitter and in person. Together, we can improve the system and end the revolving door.